Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, and welcome to Everything Is Fine, a podcast for women over forty. We are your hosts. I'm Kim France, and I'm Jen Romolini. And I have good news today, Jen. Tell me the good news. Well, I spoke on the podcast more than once about the procedure I was having that I had a couple weeks ago. And um, I didn't say what it was, but it was a biopsy. And turns out I don't have cancer. Woo! I can't believe you've saved this for on air and now I have to have this. I've literally been talking to you for an hour and a half. And you have just- <laughs> I got to save some shit so we have something to talk about. Oh, I am so happy to hear this. I am very embarrassed to have to talk about it on air, but I am, I was sweating that one. I am really happy about this. I am, I'm really happy. You must be so relieved. I'm very relieved. I mean, the doctors were pretty sure that it wasn't cancer, but they still wanted to do a biopsy. And when I had breast cancer, the doctors told me, a doctor told me there was a 98% chance it was nothing and that it was something. So I never quite trust them. And also this whole thing got spread out over a matter of weeks and even months, you know, as insurance decided whether or not they'd pay for things. Um, so it was a little nerve wracking. Yeah, it was, it was really nerve wracking and it was like, um, yes, it was a, it was a multi, multi-step process and it was very long. Oh my God. I'm really happy to hear that. I'm, really, I'm so touched. You're so happy. You like I, me. I do. I love you. And I was worried <laughs> and I was secretly worried because I didn't want to bring my worry to you and, you know, make you freaked out. And I also didn't want to be like nudging you all the time, like an asshole and being like, what's going on with that test? How are you doing with that test? So I'm, I'm really happy to hear this. Huh? 
whoa. All right. Well, this was a new thing we did. Okay. <laughs> How are you? I'm, I'm really good. I'm, I'm really good. Um, I'm really good. I'm a little work tweaked as we've been discussing. I'm a, I'm a little bit like a uh, meth head about work. Um, yesterday I wrote a whole Patreon post and about this dress, which I'm going to talk about in a second. And I went to hit publish because I blog on Patreon about clothes and shit. And I went to hit publish and I accidentally hit X out and I lost the whole post and it was formatted. It was formatted pictures, hyperlinked the whole thing. And I lost it and I was very angry, but sorry, Patreon patrons. Um, the whole world gets to hear about this dress. I have a great new summer dress that is under $25. Tell me more. It is a 100% cotton dress from H&M. It is like a, a daytime nightgown. It is incredibly tinty and billowy. It is like just straps on the top, but it's so comfortable. I'm. This is the first day I'm not wearing it since it arrived. Um, and it has, it has, it's backless, but you can wear a camisole under it, or you could let your bra drop out. I think kind of sometimes that's cute, but I've been just, it's a perfect summer dress and I found it. I'll, I will put it in the show notes and it is, um, it's a perfect dress. And anyway, I wrote about like how in the summer you think that you want to be, um, you, you think that you want to be structured and chic, but really you want like the clothes equivalent of comfort food. You want you want to feel like your clothes aren't necessarily touching you anywhere when it gets really hot? Yes. Speaking of like, you know, dressing in the summer, I told you last week, or maybe it'll be more weeks than that by the time this airs, about my um, comic attempts to make shorts out of perfectly good pairs of pants. A story that I've been laughing about for, for weeks. Go ahead. <laughs> um, but I wore a pair of those shorts today and I was like, okay, if I don't leave the house, I can wear these. That's all. Well, that's my whole story. Okay. That's your. That's the. That's the beginning and end. The whole cycle of the story. But here's the thing. What? Why? What's? What's wrong with them? Why can't you leave the house in them? Are they? Are they crooked? <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Probably crooked. I just look funny in them. I don't look. It doesn't look right to be wearing a pair of cut off jeans shorts. That I. I think I should have cut them off at the knee, and I cut them off above the knee. Oh. Okay. I don't okay. know. I don't know. Look, it's it's a it's a tough it's a tough thing. The other thing I bought because you know I'm I'm a buyer. Um, I bought these like foam slides because I'm kind of over my Birkenstocks, even though I love them. The plastic ones, I'm just uh, like the aesthetic is getting on my nerves for some reason. Um, I bought these J these J Crew slides, and they were they were way too expensive. But now you know J Crew basically if you go in almost any day you can get like eight different sales and get things basically for free. Yeah. Anyway, for like $15, I got these foam slides and I don't know if they're outside shoes, but they're very much like an inside slipper shoe. Like they're a perfect, like inside you're just like walking around, but you want to be like cushioned while you're like doing the dishes or like, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever. Anyway, I bought them and I'm going to buy like three more pair of them because I feel like they have a very like kind of Japanese look to them. Like they, they're just like a cool little slipper slide. They'd be good around the pool. You know, I want to, I'm, I'm going to sit here and I have to look them up. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm making typing noises, but I'm really curious. Oh, I see them. Yeah. They're they're crisscross. Yes, yes, they're perfect. They're perfect. J. Crew Women's Marina Waterproof 
cross strap Eva sandals. Yeah, they look good. And they're as comfortable, if not more comfortable than my Birkenstocks. And they're a different shape and they're, they're super, they just looked really cute on. I was surprised at how cute and how snugly they fit. So I'm going to buy more pairs of those and I'm going to buy more of those H&M dresses. And that might just be it forever. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, I, 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 I don't shop at H&M much, but I have noticed that H&M does ha- make a nice cotton summer dress, like a hundred percent cotton su- summer dress. They, they, they have some caftans right now that are not bad. It's that, it's that Andrea trick of, and I do it with mango too. It's that Andrea trick of putting in hundred percent cotton in the search bar and then finding what you like finding actually quality clothes. And then, you know, it is fast fashion, but the thing with fast fashion is it's kind of, you kind of negate the cost of it. If you're going to wear it, if it's like a price per wear situation, you're going to wear it for years. This H and M dress I will be wearing for years. And if it's all natural fibers, it's a better choice. I'm not saying that supporting fast fashion is ever good, but it's a much better choice as a more responsible choice as a consumer. If you're buying non-synthetic fabrics, which break down easier, you know? Well, also, I mean, the, the supposition is that if you're buying fast fashion, you are going through it very quickly as well. And that doesn't have to be true. Like you just said. Also, just one more thing. If anybody does order that dress, it runs super big. So I size down, I could size down again. And it is, they're very inclusive sizing on this dress. I'm telling you, it is, you're going to want to, you're going to want to sleep in it and then wear it by the pool the next day. (laughs) (laughs) That's so good. Um, So I don't want to go too long in our intro, even though I would like to talk to you for 10 years, because we have a long episode today um, with Dory Clark, who I was very curious to interview because she is a I find her to be a very exciting career expert in that she's not giving very corporate advice, like here's how Mm -hmm. to do this. I think that she really thinks expansively and is really thinks about, you know, us living fulfilling lives and fulfilling goals, even if they're not like climbing a career ladder. And actually, especially if they're not uh, climbing a career ladder, like where do you want to be for the next half of your life? You know, what do you want to do and how do you set yourself up appropriately to get there? Um, Yeah, it was, she was both, she both like brought a lot of meaning to the topic and a lot of actionable things. Yes, I hope it's a good episode. It's a good episode. And I'm sorry, listeners, there were a lot of amazing questions. We got to as many as we could. Um, So I'm sorry that a lot, we'll have another career expert on. This seems to be like this and beauty is like the two. (laughs) Our two two evergreens. Our two evergreens. But we will have another person on to answer more questions. But um, do you want to get into it? Let's get into it. Our guest today is Dory Clark. Dory is an author, speaker, and executive leadership teacher who's been named one of the top five business thinkers in the country. She teaches executive education at Duke University and is the best-selling author behind the books The Long Game, Entrepreneurial You, Reinventing You, and Standout, which was named the number one leadership book of the year by Inc. Magazine. 
a former presidential campaign spokeswoman. Dory is a frequent contributor to the Harvard Business Review and consults and speaks for clients such as Google, Yale University, and the World Bank. She is also a graduate of the Harvard Divinity School, which I think is so cool, and the producer of a multi-Grammy winning jazz album. Welcome, Dory. Hi. Hi. How's it going? It's going great. I feel like you're going to solve all our career <laughs> problems today in just one hour. So I'm very... I hope so. Let's do it. Let's do it. So I'm just going to jump right in. It seems like you've had multiple careers at this point, but your current one started after you were laid off from your job as a journalist and you felt blindsided by this and hated feeling that vulnerable. Can you tell us that story? Because I heard that and I think it's super inspiring um, and empowering. Well, thank you. Yes, it was It was a big surprise to me. It is, it is now, uh, for, for most people who pay even a modicum of attention, not surprising that a journalist would be laid off. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but this was 2001 and it was definitely surprising. Um, what we often forget is that things that seem like they've been trends forever um, often can can really turn around quite rapidly. And so the year 2000 was actually the high watermark in terms of the profitability of the newspaper industry. It was the most profitable year on record. And then all of a sudden, very, very fast, thanks to the internet, thanks to Craigslist, uh, the profits just completely evaporated. So by the fall of 2001, um, I was working for this little paper and it was starting to experience uh, the effects of that. So I ended up getting laid off from my job as a reporter in Boston. And uh, as it as it happened, you know, nobody was really uh, predicting this. But the day that I got laid off was Monday, September 10th, 2001, making it uh, a really unfortunate time to start my job search the next day. Jeez. Well, but in retrospect, getting fired so quickly from publishing was like dodging a major bullet. It's it's true. It's true, actually. I mean, a lot of uh, in in some ways, you could say it probably saved me a lot of heartache uh, because I had to I had to find other things to do pretty rapidly rather than just kind of watch you know watching as uh, you know the alligator of layoffs you know slowly came for me mid career. Um, so I ended up, uh, eventually I was freelancing for a while. I eventually ended up taking a job working as a press secretary on a governor's race, uh, because, you know, I couldn't get another job in journalism. So I switched over into politics. I, uh, we lost. And so I then (laughs) became a spokesperson on a presidential campaign and, uh, we lost. And so (laughs) I, uh, eventually moved back to Boston and for two years, ran a nonprofit, which was incredibly instructive in terms of learning how to be an entrepreneur, learning how to be sort of scrappy and self-sufficient. And so since 2006, I have had my own business doing a combination of writing and speaking and teaching and uh, coaching and uh, all of the things. How did you take the first steps? Like, it must have been overwhelming, super overwhelming to lose your job, you know, in the shadow of 9-11. How did you get started? So what I was doing immediately post 9-11 was, uh, was freelance journalism. And so 
Uh, you know, that was, that was the thing I knew how to do. So I basically, you know, put one foot in the, in front of the other, the way, the way one does. And I reached out to my existing contacts. So I was, uh, just trying to get assignments wherever I could. And this actually turned out to be a really super helpful experience for me because perhaps surprisingly, because I don't really get paid to write these days. I mean, I do technically get paid to write books, although we all know that that's not typically the most lucrative thing in the world. But uh, mostly yes. I do a lot of freelance writing for for either low money or very or no money. Um, but that's a big part of how I get my ideas out there into the public sphere and how I am able to build enough of a profile to get to make money on the back end. And so the ability to be able to identify what is newsworthy, to identify an angle of like, oh, that could be interesting, that's different, is really, really useful. And I spent a disproportionate amount of my time, I mean, literally even just before we got on this call, I was with an executive coaching client of mine, helping him think through an article that he's writing for a high profile publication, because uh, I really had, you know, six months plus of trial by fire, where the only money that I was making, literally the only money that was coming in was, could I write an article that people wanted and sell it? And it was incredibly high stakes in that way. So I, I learned uh, very, very quickly through trial and error, how to come up with, uh, with ideas and angles and framing that, that would sell. I, and I've heard you talk about something that what you're talking about here is transferable skills, right? So you learned this in one capacity, this skill that you're talking about, and now you're using it in another capacity. But I've heard you uh, refer to identifying one's risk profile and learning how to de-risk yourself professionally. What does that look like? Because I feel like a lot of people like come to an end, get laid off maybe at 50, and are like, whoa, I didn't know that I wasn't indispensable or, you know, it's a, it is a surprise. It's maybe not in journalism. And now you're just like, what do I even have? Well, I guess let's go back to de-risking yourself first. Yeah. Well, as you might imagine, um, getting, I, I had never really thought about risk in a big way and then getting laid off you know, from my one job, so I was therefore earning zero um, the day before nine eleven. Made me keenly aware of exposure to risk and how and be concerned about how do you mitigate it? How do you think about it? How do you get smarter about this? So you're not left in that situation in the future, right? And you know what? I, what I've come to believe is that for a lot of us, I mean, this is just a very human thing. We we really put on blinders because there's a lot of things we don't want to see, you know, whether it's things we don't want to see in our boyfriend or girlfriend or things we don't want to really see in our work or, you know, whatever. And we, we just kind of make assumptions that things will proceed the way they're proceeding. And obviously I think on a, on a very global scale, COVID showed us, no, no, actually some massively disruptive things have the potential to happen. And so, it's um, it's accurate a lot of the time that things will proceed as they're proceeding, right. but it's not accurate all of the time. Right, and that difference between a lot of and all is really enormous. And if we don't prepare for it properly, it can mean that there are some some really devastating consequences. So, how do we put a floor on things? I mean, sometimes it's as basic. 
as just being incredibly assiduous about creating the rainy day fund, the emergency fund for yourself and stocking away that money so that you know, like, okay, I know I won't be homeless. You know, you might not right. be in great shape, but you won't be homeless right. or whatever and, uh, and preparing. But it's, it's about sort of baking in resiliency. I was recently, um, I, I recently read a biography, really good biography of Stuart Brand, who was the creator of the Whole Earth Catalog. And one mm -hmm. of one of his many projects, this is a guy who did a lot of things, but he wrote a book called How Buildings Learn, which was very influential in the world of architecture and like urban planning. And basically, you know, what he what he said is that the most successful buildings are the ones that are not built in a sort of set and uh, inviolable, inviolable way to optimize for the conditions of today. You might have a building that is perfect for your needs today, but if it can't be changed easily, probably it's going to be out of date and really inappropriate in five years because let's say you have a company that grows or let's say you have a company that shrinks or let's say suddenly your workforce decides, hey, we all want to go virtual. Well, that's going to be a really big problem if you can't make changes. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a good building is one that's modular, that's flexible, that, that, you know, can learn, quote unquote, based on what the needs are or how people are actually using things or how they want to use things in the future. And the same is true for us. It's, it's very much, you know, hearkening back to, you know, the sort of Darwinian evolution, not the, not the smartest wins, not the, you know, not the strongest, not the fastest. It's the most adaptable that wins. And so we, ha we, we can't lock ourselves into anything, whether it's an ideology or a way of doing things or, or some kind of a mindset, um, because it, it becomes, it might be just right for this moment, becomes extremely perilous the minute that circumstances change. This reminds, my brother's a business consultant and he ex reminds me of a concept he explained to me called founder's disease where you'll probably, you probably can articulate it better than me, but basically the person who founded a company and, and visualized it isn't the person to bring it forward into the future because they lack that adaptability. Yeah, absolutely. And, and of course, you know, this is an interesting and controversial question in, uh, in Silicon Valley because archetypally the founder does, you know, sort of get either willingly or unwillingly pushed out because they say, you know what? Your, you know, your skill set is you're the visionary, and so now we need an operator that can actually systematize it, that can, you know, put some order around this sucker and make it profitable. Um, there are some people, some rare people, who are able to do both. They're able to be visionaries and uh, good operators and systematize things. Um, you know, you also see people like, you know, the sort of classic example is Mark Zuckerberg, who uh, a was able to, because he had a really ridiculously favorable uh, set of, um, of you know, stock, uh, stock options and was able to maintain, a, you know, a sort of unprecedented level of control over Facebook as compared to other founders. But, you know, he also was smart enough to realize, gosh, I don't want to kick myself out, but I probably need some help. And so that is why he, for a decade plus, brought in Sheryl Sandberg, who did have that operational expertise to help. Um, but yes, it's, uh, it's true. A lot of people can kind of get, get locked into things where their skill set might not really be right for the moment. Right. Um, well, we were going to start talking about um, 
your most recent book, The Long Game, um, what made you want to write this book? Explain what this book is and what made you want to write it. So The Long Game, the subtitle of it is How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. And as you can imagine, I was inspired by a lot of the scenarios that we just find ourselves in on a day-to-day basis. I mean, pre-COVID, most of us were rushing around so much, you know, almost everybody I knew was complaining, I don't have enough time to think. Oh, I'm so busy. You know, I'm crazy busy. And, you know, that was sort of a societal epidemic. And even once COVID hit, you know, you'd think, oh, this is an opportunity for a massive rest, a massive reset. But but no, not really, <laughs> because we're, we're doing even more short-term thinking or, you know, maybe, maybe it's the same amount, but it's, it's just, you know, you can't make long-term plans because, oh, sorry, no, it's Delta. Oh, no, it's Omicron. You know, you can't plan for anything. And so everything continues to be short-term. And as a result, it means oftentimes that we are failing to successfully work toward the outcomes that we actually want. We get caught up, you know, doing these sort of dumb things that, you know, maybe it's the optimal thing, you know, in the moment in the short term, but they're not leading to the place that we want to go. And so I became really interested in this question of, well, how do we get to the place we want to go? Because obviously a lot of the things that are most meaningful to us, whether it's you know, rising to a certain level, executive level at a company or creating your own business and really growing it into something great or, you know, raising a family or something like that. These are things that inherently take time. It's not like you can, you know, somehow put on the turbo boosters and like, oh yeah, you know, well, well, uh, for most people it takes 18 years to raise a kid, but I'll do it for mine in two, (laughs) right? It just doesn't really work. Um, so for something that takes time, how do we be thoughtful about really making the choices that that will help us end up where we want to go? How how do you guys think about long-term thinking in your own life or the the pressures mitigating against it? It's it, it's interesting because one thing that Jen and I were talking about is, you know, I'm 58 years old. Do I really want to be thinking about the long game career-wise? Like or how do I think about the long game career-wise when in reality like my working days are numbered? <laughs> You know, for people who are in their 50s, it is going to be more common than not for it just in terms of, of actuarial estimates of lifespan for folks to be living into their 90s. So I, I think that we have these sort of strange and outmoded ideas like, oh, how could I think long term? I'm going to I'm going to retire. Well, that doesn't mean you're going to die. I really hope I really hope it doesn't mean you're going to die because the truth is most people will have 40 years left. That is an enormous time that we need to be planning for. And so even if it's not the sort of typical, oh, I'm going to do this and this and this to to rise in the corporate hierarchy, the our lives, our quote unquote work and our quote unquote life are really the same thing. And so even if the goals are, um, are slightly different, you know, maybe it's something like, I always wanted to write a mystery novel. I'm going to do that. Or maybe it's, you know, I think I'm going to take a round the world trip or, you know, I'm going to join a charity board because I always wanted to do something for the elephants. And now I freaking can, you know, these, these are all professional goals. It might not be quote unquote career goals, but 
they are they are part of the sort of well-rounded life that I think most of us want. So unless there's somebody out there that literally is planning on sitting on a beach, you know, with a with a, a Michelob and just doing <laughs> nothing else for 40 years, I think mm-hmm. we all do need to be doing long-term planning, you know, whether whether we're 50, whether we're 60, whether we're 70, because you know what? You probably have decades left to plan. Yeah. And I think that is something I am acutely aware of, that kind of professional bucket list, because I'm I'm 49 and I've been moving into different careers, taking my skills and putting them into new places. And and that is meaning for me doing some of the things that I know how to do really well in established ways. And that's how I make the bulk of my money because I already know how to do that. And the other half of my time is spent learning new skills that are building. I'm planting seeds for the future. So like, that's the way I think about it because I want to write. I kind of know, I kind of am backtracking. I know what I want to be doing in my 50s, 60s. I'm hoping that I would get to write novels and I get to do this and that and that. And so I'm planting some seeds that may get me there. Oh, I have a better chance of getting there now. And that's having to be really vulnerable and having a real beginner's mind. I was about to, no, I was about to say, and I'm really irritated that you said beginner's mind because I was about to say that. <laughs> You're really, you are somebody who's really good at embracing beginner's mind. And that can be a very hard thing to do. But I do think that I, I think that you're absolutely right, Dory. And like one of the questions we have here, though, because a lot of this stuff is like we hear these platitudes and like, you know, I can talk the specifics of what I've been doing for years, the ways that I've been had like a thousand tiny humiliations, like and I've allowed that myself to be humiliated because I mean, you know, and it felt humiliating to me, not to the outside world, allowed that because I understand the end goal. Right. But often these stories for people. They just feel so f- out of your realm of understanding, right? Like, how do I learn skills? And someone's like, well, learn more tech. And you're like, fuck off. Learn TikTok. You're like, fuck off. But keeping yourself relevant and learning new things all the time and stretching at any age, I feel like that's what keeps you engaged. It keeps you excited. And one thing I've heard you say is optimize for interesting. So talk So talk about all of this. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, I think, I think my mom is actually a great example of this. She is 84 and she is really into learning Spanish. I mean, she's always kind of wanted to learn Spanish, but hadn't sort of prioritized it. And, you know, now that she's 84, she's got more time and she's taking a weekly Skype lesson with a guy in Peru. And she is like a ninja on Duolingo and I, I'm now doing it with her to like keep her company, and she's just smoking me. <laughs> it's uh, it's incredibly impressive, and she's all doing this because you know, like it's it's just kind of fun. It's interesting for her and her her vision. You know, she's going to visit me in my place in Miami and just like be able to talk to people in like restaurants and stuff, you know, right, but, but right. she's, she's going all, all in on it. So you, you know, you pick the thing you want to do. I mean, it's, it's true, right? I mean, everyone's like, oh, you can learn to program. And, uh, you know, that, that sure, that's a good answer. Uh, that will probably be useful, but it's not the right answer for everybody. But finding a thing that actually is cool, is fun, is interesting for you is really crucial. And so, yes, in the long game, I do talk about a concept uh, that I call optimize for interesting, which which is um, 
the, the original genesis of this years ago, I directed a documentary film called The Work of a Thousand, which is about this very kind of heroic woman who essentially single-handedly led uh, the cleanup effort around one of America's most, uh, you know, 10 most polluted rivers. And she was telling her life story as we were interviewing her. And she shared an anecdote that I thought was was quite powerful. And she said that when she went off to college, you know, this is sort of like she's literally walking out the door and her mother's last words to her as she was leaving for college was, whenever you have a choice of what to do, pick the most interesting option. And <laughs> I thought that sounds fantastic. Like, why not? Right? You know, this is this is kind of like Robert Frost and the and the road less traveled, but uh, but better because it's like, well, who cares? If, you know, if it's tr- more traveled, less traveled, pick the interesting road right. and right. do that, and you'll you'll at least keep yourself entertained, which is half the battle. Let's take a quick break from some ads. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Support for Everything is Fine comes from Ritual. So I love Ritual. Everyone knows I love Ritual. I talk about Ritual all the time. I particularly love its daily, their daily multivitamin. And I also really have been enjoying their melatonin. But the thing I love most about Ritual is their Hyacera. It's a once daily skin supplement that's clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. In a clinical study, Hyacera led to 3.6 times reduction in crow's feet wrinkles within 90 days as compared to a placebo. Hyacera led to 2.9 times increase in skin smoothness within 90 days as compared to a placebo. You can enhance your skincare routine from the inside out with one daily capsule essenced with soothing vanilla. I love Hyacera. It's been rigorously tested and validated. It's one of the industry-leading sustainability. It it meets, sorry, all of the industry-leading sustainability standards. You know I'm a beauty editor now. I am all about keeping my face plump 
and highest Sarah absolutely has done that for me. I've been on it for months. I don't even know how long and I can really see a difference in the texture of my skin. My skin looks more juicy, I guess is the best way to do it. Say it, do it. Ah. Okay. So you can start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash fine. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription to get today. That's ritual.com slash fine for 25% off. And we're back. What do you say to women? We hear sometimes from listeners who say, you know, it's great to listen to women who accomplish something like the women who come on your podcast, but I've never found my thing. I've just never found my thing. I'm 45. I'm 50. My kids are grown. I don't, I, I don't even know how to start. I'd like to get back in and I don't even know, I don't even know where my entry point is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, this is also, I think, where Optimize for Interesting comes into play because something that I feel very passionate about is that we have a culture, and perhaps not just a culture, but a cult uh, in, in the contemporary United States of talking about, you know, your passion, find your passion. Ugh. And it's, you know, it's like, okay, God bless. If you have a passion, I, I want you to do it. That's amazing. But the truth is there are a lot of people that don't have one or don't know what it is. And then they feel bad. They feel like ashamed, like, oh, I guess I don't have a passion. You know, and they, and they feel like they're this like lesser quality of human being. And it's like, oh, come on. No, 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 no. It's ridiculous. Um, the only way that you're going to find a passion, if in fact you are going to find one, is through just experimenting. You got to lower the stakes, right? It's It becomes so intense. I mean, it would be like if literally after every first date you ever had, somebody was interviewing you like, well, is this the one? And you're like, I, I don't know. And they're like, well, decide. Be <laughs> horrifying. So you need some time to marinate with things. So my advice is like, okay, optimize for interesting. People don't necessarily know what their passion is, but they know if something's interesting to them. I mean, I can say like, and you know, hey, Jen, do you want to go to a jazz club? And you're like, oh, yeah, that's amazing. Or, you know, like, eh, I hate jazz. You know, right. like, you can tell me that. You can tell right. me what's interesting or not. And it's just like, okay, great. Start there. And if something keeps being interesting, keep doing it. And if it doesn't, pivot. But odds are the journey of figuring that out will actually help you triangulate a little bit better to figure out things that are more in the wheelhouse of what you like. Um, you wrote that personal brands are a kind of career insurance. And I feel like if you're over a certain age and you hear the expression personal brand, you, you know, you roll your eyes, you think this is ridiculous, this is for the kids. Can you explain what you mean by a personal brand and why it's so important? Sure, sure. And I mean, you know, of course, the the first thing is uh, you're exactly right that a lot of the discourse around personal brand has has somehow gotten conflated with like influencer or like, yes. you know, oh, your personal yeah. brand is like- TikTok. Yes. Yes. I, I do amazing dances on TikTok. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I mean, obviously that's just, that's just not relevant for a lot of the population. But, you know, the frame that I prefer that I think is more helpful is basically- just substitute, because this this is true, this is all it is, substitute the word personal brand for reputation. 
you you clearly have a reputation. People think something about you. Right. This, is, this is true for every person. They think something. And so the question is, well, number one, what do they think? And number two, is it what you would hope that they think? Is it what you would wish that they would think about you? And if it is, great. If it is not, well, geez, maybe we'd better do something about it. And that that is is just you know the stakes of personal brand is like okay you know if if you're if there's a conversation happening in a room that you're not in which frankly is most conversations and there's a really sexy opportunity maybe it's for a promotion maybe it's like oh hey you know who who gets to um, you know gosh we've somehow ended up with two free Oscars tickets who should get to go you know whatever right. it is right you want to be the person that people are like oh well Kim obviously you should have Kim do it <laughs> and so how do we make sure that for the right kind of opportunity that you want that you're the person that they think of. How do you find out? Like, I would be very curious to know what my personal brand really is. Like, I have an idea, but I would be very curious to hear what a people what people in a room would. I don't necessarily want to, but I would be curious to hear what they said. And how do you know so you can correct for it, or how can you, you know, nuts and bolts? What are some things that we can do to sort of change that story? That's not just like I'm going to put up a t you know a reel on Instagram. I mean, and maybe that's part of it, but maybe it's not. You know, right, right. Well, so this is a topic that in my first book, Reinventing You, I actually talked about quite quite a lot. You know, how do you how do you change people's perceptions? How do you how do you find out what they are and then change them if you need to? And so there's a lot of different things you can do. Um, one possibility, I mean, sometimes, for instance, uh, if you have a corporate role, sometimes your company will pay for an executive coach or like a 360 interview process, which is super helpful if, if they're willing to do it. Um, the executive coach would anonymously interview all the people around you, you know, your employees, your boss, your colleagues, and then compile it and basically be like, here's what people think about you. Wow. And so that is wow. incredibly intimidating, but uh, very informative. So for some people, if you're in a corporate role, that's one possibility. For people who aren't, which is, you know, maybe maybe most people, um, there's what I kind of call like a back of the envelope version of that, which I share in Reinventing You. And I call it the three-word exercise. And it's super simple. Basically, the idea is that you reach out any way you want. I mean, you can call people, you can text them, you can put a message on Facebook, like whatever you want. But you reach out to people, I usually suggest at least half a dozen so you have enough diversity. And these should be people who know you pretty well. And you, you ask them a really simple question. You say, hey, I'm doing this activity here. If you had to describe me in only three words, what would they be? And so you just take it, you compile the results, you make sure you write everything down so you don't forget it. And what I am almost certain of uh, is that you are very quickly going to see patterns in what they're telling you. You're going to see clusters that everybody's saying, oh, she's so creative or, oh, she's so analytical or, you know, whatever it is. You're going to see these clusters. And this is valuable. I mean, you know, the exercise, you know, th this is not an exercise that solves all problems, right? This is not like, let me identify your weaknesses, right? This is more kind of about your, your strengths or your vibe, right. I guess you could say. But what is really useful about it is that the part that we just have no clue about, it's not necessarily that they're going to tell you something that's so shocking that you've never heard about yourself, right? You'll probably recognize what they're saying. But the part that's useful is that for most of us, we know 
too much about ourselves. We know too many things. And so therefore, we have absolutely no sense of the relative level of importance. And so having a cluster of people who are forced to narrow it down to three adjectives, you're able to see, oh, wow. I mean, yeah, I knew I was creative, but I didn't realize that people thought it was like my defining characteristic in the world. Right. And that actually gives you a lot of, a lot of interesting insight and ammunition. Yeah, I've also seen you say, um, because again, like I really want to give people some real hope. I know that there are a lot of women around our age who are, you know, afraid of ageism or have experienced it, right? And and both of those things, but the fear of it being there, I think can really just like shut us down, make us not even want to try, or ambition is waning and we don't want to, we don't want to work in the same way, or we don't know how to find our curiosities, right? We just don't know anymore because we maybe got lulled into just like complacency as we were raising our kids. I mean, all of these things are so real at this midlife, right? But one thing I've heard you say is starting where there's already momentum. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I do think finding what you want to do next is kind of sitting with what you have. It's it's part of this exercise you're talking about, but also being able to identify where the, where the path is, like how do, where's the most clear path? How can I just push some brush away? And there it is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what is often true is that, you know, we, we sometimes envision that we have to, you know, figure everything out. We have to start from scratch and, you know, it feels like the super onerous process, but actually there are often a lot of clues, you know, sort of like the breadcrumbs that we can follow if we're smart about looking for them. And so, for instance, you know, as just one example, like an example of like starting a business, but I think the same thing holds true if you're looking for, you know, what kind of a corporate job should I be getting into if that's what your, if that's what your thing is. But, you know, people often come to you for some form of advice or counsel. And and this is true for, for everybody, right? I mean, for most friend groups, there becomes this sort of established thing that like, oh, well, ask her. And it, you know, it's, it's could be very diverse. It could have nothing to do with your formal professional training, but it's like, oh, you know, Jen has this amazing fashion sense. Um, I don't really know what I'm going to wear at a Sally's wedding. So I'm going to text her and I'm going to text her pictures of my outfits and have her pick for me. You know, like, like that's one form of expertise where your friends are literally voting with their feet to say, I trust your judgment, not mine, you know, or, you know, there's, there's a million other things. Maybe it's like, oh, I need to look for a job. Oh, I know. I'm going to have Kim look at my resume. She's so good with these things. I'm going to give it to her and make her polish it for me. Right. You know, like what are the things that informally people are already signaling to you that Mm. they, like they know things you don't. Right. They, they are showing you that it's like, oh, people seem to think I'm good at this. And that becomes a basis that you can use to start exploring, to start testing. I mean, no, you're not going to start like charging your friends, but can you do things for free for your friends and then get testimonials? Or can you get you know referrals where they refer you to their friend who might pay you a little bit of money to sort of test the waters like yes that's a thing and it can become a starting point for you 
What do you? Th- what would, what advice would you give somebody who's worked for the man her entire life and wants to start something on her own? So my my most important piece of advice is what holds a lot of people back from taking action is the fear of you know jump you know jumping and taking a leap and you know doing doing the thing that feels very risky. And I say you're right. Don't jump anywhere. <laughs> I think I think it's it's kind of a terrible idea. A lot of people <laughs> somehow imagine that the only way that they can start a business or start something on their own is to just quit and then just hope good <laughs> things happen. And I feel like that's such a pernicious myth. What you should start doing is taking your nights and weekends and practicing and fiddling around on the side and testing things. And don't quit your job until you have multiple clients and have actually managed to get proof of concept that you like doing the thing, that people like it when you do the thing, that people are willing to pay you for the thing. You know, that's that's the key. I, I also wrote a book called Entrepreneurial You, where I talk about this and you know how to create these entrepreneurial side streams. But there's so many good ways of, of doing this. Um, you know, there's a woman I profiled in Reinventing You named Patricia Fripp, whose goal was to become a professional speaker. And, you know, this is, this is not sort of an easy goal. Being a professional speaker is no. uh, sort of a coveted job, right? It's a sexy job. You know, you can't just sort of step into it and be like, oh, yeah, pay me to talk, right? Mm-hmm. You got to pay your stripes. But so she was a hairdresser. And so she just literally did her hairdressing and she, she started out by earning kind of, you know, random extra money giving talks. And she would initially plow all of that money into her business, you know, pay to, uh, you know, the, the speaking business, pay to get a website, pay to get training, you know, all the things you need. And, um, but eventually she started earning more money and then she started earning more money. And eventually by the time she quit her job as a hairdresser, she was earning more from her speaking than she was from the salon. And I, I just love it because there's no leaping at all. It's just, it's, it's like, it's not even stepping off the sidewalk, you know, onto the pavement. It's like, you're, you, you just are not even breaking your pace. It's like, oh yeah, I, I was doing this thing and now I'm doing this other thing and I'm making just as much money. And I, I love that. How does one establish new networks in a new industry where they know no one? Yeah, this is this is always uh, a big a big challenge if you're moving into an industry where you don't already have a base. So if if that were the situation that somebody was facing, I would say one of the best sort of life hacks that you can do is actually starting by interviewing people because even even if it's literally just like your own blog on LinkedIn or Medium or something like that you won't necessarily get the most famous people to say yes because they're busy, but there's a lot of people that are that are you know not that famous. And if you ask to interview them, they'll be like, "Sure." And you can take that opportunity number one to meet them to make a connection with them. Number two to learn from them. So you're learning the lingo of the industry. You're learning the key topics. Number three to actually get good content that you can share with other people, which demonstrates your own expertise. Even if you're profiling someone else, they associate you with that content because you're the one that put it out there. So I think having a kind of 
campaign. I mean, let's say if I, I decide, oh, you know what? I want to go into urban planning. Well, just make a goal for yourself while you have your day job, whatever it is, that once a week you will write a blog where you interview somebody who's uh, you know prominent or as prominent as you can manage in the urban planning field. And you write this post and you keep doing it after a year of doing this on the side, you're going to know a lot of people. You're going to have a lot of connections, a lot of relationships. You are absolutely going to know what's happening in the field, what people are talking about. You probably have become smart enough that you can talk a good game about it too. And, uh, and so by the time you're ready to make your entry, you'll be in a really good position. You're submitting your resume. They'll be like, what does she know about urban planning? And then you're like, oh yeah, you want to see my 50 blog posts here? Here's some mm-hmm. Right. Right. I have, right. That's, that's, um, I like that. I never really thought about that and that's fairly easy. And also in doing interviews, Q and A's are, you don't have to be a great writer to do a Q and A because you're just sort of, you know, printing out the transcript and maybe tightening it up a little bit, but yeah, that's it. I love that. Um, advice for successful tactics for staying current, relevant, and in demand as trends change and shift. Um, I've, I've seen you talk about becoming a professional Swiss army knife. Yes. Yes. Well, it's, it's true. I mean, you know, obviously things, things are moving fast. And so we do need to uh, make sure that we're keeping up with it. I think that there's a lot of ways we can do that though. I mean, the question really is just like, how, how do you stay close to the ground? And so, that's going to take different forms in different professions. But for me, for instance, I, you know, am, am starting to do less executive coaching, one-on-one executive coaching, just because, you know, it, it, it's very time intensive. And so now that, um, travel is kind of back a little bit more post COVID I'm traveling more to speak. Uh, I, I just have less time to be able to do it, but I don't think there's ever going to be a situation where I give up executive coaching fully. And the reason for that is that working one-on-one with people gives me a perspective about the struggles that people are having now. You know, it kind of, it kind of keeps it real so that I have updated examples of things to talk about, or, you know, I just, I know what's happening on the street so that you don't get ossified in, in what you're doing. Um, I think that's, that's probably the, the most important thing. And so there's a lot of different ways, you know, that you can keep it real, you know, whether, you know, whatever your version of executive coaching is, but how do you stay close to the ground in, in your field so that you can uh, be knowledgeable or the field you want to move into? Like a couple of years ago at 48, I was an intern at a podcast studio and it was, you know, I, I literally cleaned the bathroom and I watered the plants, but I also did a lot of invoicing. I did a lot of, uh, uh, PowerPoint creation. So I learned about a business that I was interested in and, you know, on the side and it was only like 10 hours a week, but now I'm starting to move into doing podcasts because I learned I was close to the ground, like when I was an assistant and that's how, I mean, if we don't have the skills, we have to get in there. We had another guest, um, Julie Lithcott Hames, who said she hired a younger person to do her TikTok and teach her everything about TikTok, you know? And it was, I think it was like an exchange where she mentored the person about like grown up things and the young person it mentored her about TikTok. Like there's so, I think that sometimes it's a failure of imagination in how we get stuck when there's so many possibilities. Once you start opening yourself up to, to them, 
right? To all the different things. Yeah. It's true. It requires, it feels like it requires like a lot of confidence and real egolessness at the same time. Yeah. I think that you're absolutely right, Kim. You know, one of my examples, which I talk about in the, in the new book, the long game is I decided in 2016 that I wanted to learn to write musical theater. And this was not something that I had ever done before, like literally not ever. And I, I just, there was so much to learn about the process. And so I set my sights on this particular program that I had heard about, um, run by BMI, the music publishing company. And as soon as I heard about it, I'm like, oh, this is it. This is what I need. You know, it was kind of a prestigious program. I'm like, good. It'll be great for social proof. And it's like a musical theater training program. I'm like, yes, that's exactly what I need. I need to be trained in musical theater. And so I managed to, you know, to finagle my way into this program. And upon arriving in this training program, I discover that there's literally multiple people in the program that have master's degrees in musical theater. (laughs) I'm like, um, yeah, I guess you're being trained, but you're being trained in an extremely different way than I am. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, like, Oh my God. You know, they were like legit experts and they were in this program with me. And so it was just such a high level of humiliation, uh, learning these things. And, you know, I had to sort of be gentle with myself. I'm like, you know, literally you don't know, (laughs) like, it's not like you're screwing up something like you've never learned this, you know, but, but it is, it is a little humiliating because as an adult, you, you get, you get used to being good at things. You get used to being proficient at things. And it's, and it's harder and it's harder to start over. It's like, I always say when you watch an adult who's learning how to walk again, compared to a child who's learning to walk for the first time. Right. But it's like, but it's, but thinking of the payoff at the, is the Hume, is the humiliation, the thousand, the thousand tiny humiliations, which I really do think is the path from one thing to another. Is it worth it to you? And so really the, the part of this is working backwards, I think from like, identifying what that pot of gold is for you. And like, it can be a small, it doesn't have to be like, I want to be the, you know, the president of a company. It could be that it could be something small. Like I want to, I want at the end of this produce a musical, a musical because I've never done it before. And I'd really like to write one or be a part of one. And that's enough of a goal that is incentivizing for you. So it's like finding what is that thing that's going to make the thousand tiny humiliations worth it. And sometimes there might not be, be one of those for you. But I want to know, have you written a musical? I, I sure have. I sure have written a musical. Yes. <laughs> I, uh, That's so I, awesome. Yeah. We're having in, uh, in August in Dallas, there's going to be a, uh, a stage reading of the musical. So it's, it's moving along. It's uh, making good progress. Can I ask you just a really basic question? Like, what are some good things to do or not to do or say when you're in a job interview? Mm. So I think that one of, so first of all, one of the best things, and I, and I try to do this just in general, I have a little game that I like to play, um, where I, I call it like conversation chicken, where, you know, you're playing chicken with the other person, like, you know, picture drag racing. And, uh, the, the chicken that you're playing here is that I want to be the last person to say anything about me, to say anything about what I'm doing. Because honestly, the more I can draw out the other person, 
A, the more they'll probably enjoy the conversation and B, the more targeted I can be. Because if I know 10 different things about you, instead of just, you know, coming up with some standard pitch, I'm Dory, I do blah, blah, blah. Um, if I know, Kim, you know, some some sort of fact about you, I can home in on that fact. And at a certain point, you'll be like, oh, oh, I'm so sorry. I've been talking all about myself. Tell me about you, Dory. And I can pick the one thing about me that is going to be most salient to you and say that. And you'll be like, oh my God, really? And then you'll be super interested. And then we can have a good conversation. So I think that for job interviews, it's very similar to that. I would, I would try to ask as many questions as possible about the company, about the person, you know, um, but above and beyond that, I would say, what do you not say? I think that the thing that justifiably employers are really concerned about is people who feel entitled, people who feel too good to do something. And so any, any kind of comment about, well, that's not in my lane or like, no, I don't do that. You know, it's like, oh really? Because everyone else around here does it. So, (laughs) you know, so I think anything that sort of showcases an unwillingness to be, uh, you know, to to roll up your sleeves and do what is necessary is probably going to be a big, a big turnoff to an employer. And I can understand why. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Another brass tacks question, resume guidance, especially as you get older. Um, what is the ideal length? Uh, some of our listeners have been told theirs is too heavy an experience. Do you have any thoughts on what we should be doing with our resumes after we have all this, you know, we have all this experience. What do we do? Yeah. Well, you know, okay. So this is a, this is a both and question. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, to literally answer your question, I mean, the sort of rule of thumb, right. Is that, um, if you're relatively new in your career, your resume is one page. If you're more senior in your career, your resume is two pages. If you are pretentious, your resume is more than two pages. So, you know, okay. try to try to keep it tight. Try to keep okay. it to, to the two pages because people get bored. They don't want to see all the things. And also, isn't it important to maybe think of your resume as something you have several versions of depending on what you're going for? Yeah, for sure. For sure. You want to tailor it. Exactly. Kind of like the conversation chicken uh, issue, right? You know, if if I'm applying for a job at an environmental nonprofit, the things I'm going to want to highlight are all my experience related to environmental issues and to nonprofit issues. And so if I, you know, whatever, spent 15 years as an ice cream scooper, maybe I leave that off. Um, so, you know, that's, that's the, that's the one thought. The other thought though, is, you know, sort of the and part of the both and is, in a lot of ways, I'm not sure your resume matters that much. And uh, I, I feel like in some ways, it's kind of like, well, we're sort of asking the wrong question. Like, yes, you want a good resume, sure. Um, but also, especially if you're trying to change careers, and especially if you are a mid-career person trying to change careers, your resume probably is not what is going to get you in the door. Your network is going to get you in the door. And it's going to be somebody who knows you, somebody who has worked with you or respects you or something like that. That's like, no, no, no. I know Jen's never done this before, but she would be great. You have to believe me. She's amazing. 
And you need somebody to like really go to the mat for you because people are so freaking unimaginative. You know, they're just like, well, I don't know if she can do it because she hasn't done it. And, but, 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 you know, it's like, oh, come on. You know, skills are transferable, but you need somebody to really be a forceful advocate for you. And so that's why your, your network is going to be so important here in really um, pushing it through for you. Yeah. Uh, this is this is an interesting question. What is your take on saying yes or no to a project as a freelance person? How should we decide? I've 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 heard you talk about opportunity cost, and um, I think I think that's interesting uh, for for freelancers in particular. Yeah. So you know, in in deciding about taking a job, I mean, obviously, you know, the sort of implicit question is taking a job that doesn't meet all your criteria, right? Because if it meets all your criteria, you're like, yes. <laughs> but, uh, but if there's something quote unquote wrong with it, maybe it doesn't pay quite enough money, or maybe it's like super boring or right. whatever, then you need to, to weigh the other factors. And so at, at that point, I would say, you know, we, we have to just basically make some, make some judgment calls. I mean, the, the reward that we get for doing hard work over time is the ability to say no to more things. Mm-hmm. Um, er, early on, there's probably plenty of things that are not ideal that you say yes to because it's like, well, you know what? I need the money or whatever. Right. Like it's boring, but I need the money or, you know, whatever. Um, and then over time, you you have earned the right to be more selective and be like, you know what? I just don't feel like it. And that's so incredibly satisfying. Right. But, you know, overall, I would say, you know, we rule out the ones that violate your fundamental principles. And then, you know, we just sort of make an executive decision like, all right, maybe it's not that much money, but is it really great work that I can showcase in my portfolio? Or is it for a super sexy company that I can like put on my website and say that I've worked for them? Like those are those things are worth some currency. Maybe not money, but it's a different kind of currency. So it's it's thinking thinking through those things. Thank you so much for being here with us and giving us this hour. And um, where can our listeners find you? Jennifer and Kim, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And it's great to talk to you. If folks want to learn more, um, my new book is The Long Game and uh, they can check me out, find out all the things at my website, doryclark.com. And there's a, uh, a, a free strategic thinking self-assessment if, if folks are interested in diving into the question of how you can be a more strategic long-term thinker. And you can download it for free at doryclark.com slash the long game. Perfect. Thank you, Dory. Thanks for listening to Everything is Fine. We're your hosts. I'm Jen Romolini. And I'm Kim France. If you like the show, please rate and review it on all the platforms. We read five-star reviews on air. There's a very bad review right now. Did you see that one? I saw the really mean review, but I don't even think, it doesn't even feel specific to us. No, I think it was just somebody going through any sort of liberal women's blog and being like, they are the enemy. That's, is that what it <laughs> says? Something like that. It did say something like that. I, I'll read it, because why not? Um, it is entitled Class War. If you want to hear what the enemy sounds like, then this podcast is for you. Hey, we're somebody's enemy. Oh, how I laughed. Oh, how I laughed. Anyway, all right, let's get back to the outro. If you like the show, rate and review it. We read five-star reviews, and apparently we read one-star reviews, but please don't leave. (laughs) If you want to support the show, 
we have a Patreon. It's patreon.com backslash everything is fine. I blog there when I don't delete the blog posts. We um, also put up special episodes there and we have live monthly events. If you want to follow us on social media, we're on Instagram at EIF Podcast. We're on Twitter. We're on LinkedIn. We have a robust private Facebook group. You should totally join if you're on Facebook. We know it's the devil, but also it's a fun group. Um, Facebook is the devil. You can email us at everything is fine. The podcast at gmail.com. You can find Kim on her blog, girls of a certain age.com. You can find me on tinyletter.com backslash Jennifer Romolini. Our show is mixed and edited and saved every week by the great <laughs> Natalie Rivera. Thank you, Natalie. We'll talk next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.